Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. Glad you're here with us today. Uh, I know that I have mentioned this little fun fact to you before, but some of the most challenging moments of my being a parent have come when my kids have asked me what a word means. Uh, Harder than all, the discipline, the potty training, uh, now my son being in high school, it's true. This, This one problem has perplexed me over the years. Now, I consider myself to be a relatively smart individual, but there have been times when my sons have asked me what a word means, a word that I think I understand, but when I try to express that definition, I struggle to come out with anything that resembles a coherent thought. For example, what does coherent mean? What about the word inconceivable? Well, that means preposterous, implausible, or fantastical. Well, Dad, what does preposterous mean? I do not think that word means what you think it means. What I discovered, though, over time is that some words embody broad concepts. So that when you try to define the word, my brain wants to come up with some sort of succinct answer that encapsulates what that word is. But it's a challenge to do that with a word that defines a concept. For example, if someone were to ask you to define the word love, where would you even start? L is for the way you look at me. So let me ask you another one of those words that defines a concept, a concept that is difficult for us to define or explain. And that word is freedom. Now, this is a word that we certainly think we understand, but it is a tricky one to define in one sitting. And if you don't believe me, know this, that dictionary.com has 10 different definitions for this word. So it is a complex word. The top definition is uh, in four parts. (laughs) The absence of necessity, coercion, or constraint in choice of action. So even if we could all sit here for a while and talk about this word, uh, we might agree what it means and what the definition is and how to explain it to our children. Uh, But if I were then to say, okay, that's great, so how do you practice freedom? Look out. That problem or that question raises a lot of problems. You know, freedom is a pretty hot topic in our country right now. And there's a lot of talk about who can do what and who should be able to make decisions for whom and ultimately what freedom means in a country that has defined itself in no uncertain terms by the concept of freedom. That we are free. And there are any number of issues that we could place into this discussion that would cause fisticuffs to be joined in. Vaccines, masks, abortions, who can vote, where they can vote, how long they have to vote, racism and what can be said or not said about it. I mean, throw a stick in any direction and you will find an issue for us to fight about. But one of the core questions at the center of all of these issues is the idea of freedom. Who is free to do what? And who is free to make the choices about who is free to do what? And what gave them the right to decide what's free for me? And on and on and on and on it goes. Are you obligated to make choices for the benefit of other people? 
Or should you make choices that are good for you? How do you make a choice that is good for you if it might hurt someone else? What does your freedom, which we all in some way or another individually define, what does it mean? Acts chapter 16, not 6, 16, tells stories about people in Philippi, some who were in bondage and some who were free. So if I were to give you a list of people from this story, I might ask you, who do you think is free and who do you think is in bondage? We have a very wealthy woman, a a slave girl, the slave owners, Paul and Silas in jail, and the jailer. Out of all of these people, who are the ones who are free and who are the ones who are in bondage? Let's look in Acts chapter 16 to find an answer to that question. Starting in verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the, from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, Come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Okay, what do you think? Is Lydia free, or is she in bondage? Uh, She ended up free. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But she doesn't start out free. So here's what happens. The four missionaries traveled to Philippi and evidently set themselves up in the city and waited until the next Sabbath. So they kind of hung out there for a week before they went out uh, to begin to preach. And according to Paul's usual pattern, they went to look for a place of Jewish worship first. But in this instance, there doesn't seem to be any sort of synagogue for him to go to and to begin to preach about Jesus. So instead, they learned of a place outside the city gates. It was by a river which they, people estimate was about a mile and a quarter from the city gates. And when they get there, they find this group of women who are praying, and Lydia is one of these women. Now, Lydia is a pretty fascinating character, and this story, though it's pretty short, is important for several reasons. Number one, it's pretty clear that it's not Paul that makes this conversion happen. It is God who makes this happen. And this is not unusual, as we have seen this happen several such times throughout the book of Acts. Lydia was a worshiper of God, one of those devout Gentiles like Cornelius who believed in God but had not converted to Judaism. So that's significant about her is that, one, uh, she already believes in God, and then it's God who opens up her heart to the words that Paul has to say. Secondly, Lydia was a woman, and yes, this is notable. Uh, Women have been converted to this point in the story, but Lydia is the first to be mentioned in this capacity, and it's not just because another man wasn't there. So why does this matter? It matters 
because it speaks specifically to how the church and the kingdom of God and being in Christ broke down barriers between people. And Lydia understands this and knows this. When compared to conventional Jewish or Greco-Roman ideas about woman, women, the church must have seemed pretty radical in the way it welcomed women and featured them as leaders and prophets. In other teachings of Paul, uh, women could be members of the Christian movement without the permission of their husbands. Uh, and they may, though Paul advised against it, initiate divorce from a pagan husband if he would not come to Christ. The early church had female leaders like Lydia, even though it seemed that they did struggle a bit to square the cultural presuppositions about women with the experience of the gifts and leadership of women with early congregations. So, for example, the culture they were in wouldn't necessarily let women take on leadership roles, but then women were given the gift of prophecy. So, how do you rectify some of those things? But the point is that Lydia is an important figure in the life of the church of Philippi, and the writer makes sure we know about how she came to her faith. How did she come to faith? Well, in a lot of ways, God chose her. Just like he chose Paul, just like he chose Cornelius, just like he found someone whose heart was open, and he opened it more so that they could receive the message of the gospel. Thirdly, Lydia is a wealthy woman. Her business is a significant detail, and it marks her as a person of means. Purple goods uh, were expensive and often associated with royalty, and so therefore she made a lot of money selling purple cloth. So here's what's interesting and why we see she goes from a place of being bondage to being set free. She invites the four missionaries that are there at the time to stay in her home. So this indicates that she had places for them all to stay, right? She's got a big place. But she does something interesting. If you look at these words, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. This is a direct challenge from a woman who probably throughout her business life has been made to feel secondary. Even though she is successful and even though she has made a lot of money and has reached a certain level, what is she still? A woman. And so she accepts the gospel that Jesus loves her, died for her, that Jesus is what makes her valuable. And so she challenges these missionaries right there on the spot. If you believe that I am a believer, then come stay at my house. She wanted to take hold of her new identity in Jesus, and she challenged Paul and the others to follow through with what they said Jesus was all about. And they say, she persuaded us. In the church, wealthier members uh, gave to those who had less. Cornelius, uh, the first Gentile convert that we see, was depicted as a philanthropist. And now this rich woman named Lydia demonstrates her conversion through hospitality. And Paul consented to stay in her house and to, to break down this wall that sometimes divided male and female or Jew from Gentile. He, he broke those things by going into her house and staying with her. And Lydia 
becomes a significant figure. By the end of this chapter, we find that the whole Christian community is meeting in her house. And of all of Paul's churches that he starts, the Philippians' generosity stood out. They continued to send him support in his missionary journeys no matter where he went. So they stayed with Lydia, and she was given the freedom of being a full believer in the kingdom of God. So even though as a wealthy woman you would think she was not burdened in any way, she was. How did she find freedom? How did she find freedom to be who she really was? Through Christ. It's through Jesus that that happened. So let's pick it up in verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so now we are introduced to some more people. There is this slave girl. Is she free or is she not? She is not. She is a slave girl. And she has this spirit. Now, this spirit is interesting. It allows her to see the future or to foretell things that are happening and evidently to also tell the truth because the spirit is walking around behind them telling everyone that these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. And as far as we know, this is the only biblical exorcism that was performed out of annoyance. (laughs) There is no other record of such an exorcism. The Greek speaks literally uh, in this passage of a python spirit. The python was the symbol of the famous Delphic oracle and represented the god Apollo, who was believed to render predictions of future events. So the, the serpent, the python, had thus become a symbol of being able to see the future, and anyone who was seen to possess the gift of seeing the future was described as being led by the python. Uh, Greeks and Romans put great stock in the ability to see the future and divination. And so, for example, no commander would set out on a major military campaign, nor would an emperor make an important decree without first consorting some sort of oracle to see how things might turn out. So, this girl who is under the control of a spirit and is also a slave, BT dubs, is a gold mine for those that own her. Now, she's following them around, and she's making this declaration. And 
And this declaration that she's making would have been a little bit confusing to the Gentiles that heard it. This term, God Most High, was a common Old Testament term for God, but the same term was equally common in the Gentile world and was particularly applied to Zeus. And neither would the way of salvation be immediately clear to these Gentiles because the Greco-Roman world was full of saviors. Savior, deliverer, salvation, deliverance were favorite terms. The emperor himself dubbed himself savior of the people. So Jesus might just be seen as another savior in the pantheon of the Greek gods. But it gets old, this proclamation, and so Paul cast out the spirit. And the, owner of, the owners of this girl were not happy. So here's, is she now free? Well, she's still a slave, but she is no longer under control of the spirit. So we have to ask ourselves a difficult question, well, what does freedom mean? Right? The owners were careful in their charges uh, to avoid the real issue behind this girl's healing and their resulting loss of profit. So they basically bring three charges in front of the magistrates, and, and this little area would have been down in the, like the center of the marketplace, and they would have brought uh, uh, Paul and Silas up to these officials. And, and the first charge was that uh, these men are Jews. That's a problem because they're not from here. They're not from us. The second was this, uh, this thing, they are throwing our city into an uproar. Now, honestly, they're not throwing the city into an uproar. These men are throwing, these slave owners are throwing the city into an uproar. And the last charge says they are advocating customs unlawful for us Romans. Now, this is generally interpreted as illegal proselytizing for Judaism, but the evidence is that the Jews had not, were not forbidden to do so. So again, it's, it's like a, it's a fake charge. So all of these things are not really valid. But they had their effect because this crowd rose up behind them, and basically these slave owners created the self-fulfilling prophecy of look at all the damage that these guys are doing. And so then something kind of important happens. They get beaten up without any sort of trial. So they're beaten with rods, they're flogged, and they were placed in the innermost cell of the prison. Their feet were placed in wooden stocks that were likely fastened to the wall. So the slave girl may or may not be free. She's certainly free from the spirit, but she's not free from her owners that we know of. But what about Paul and Silas? Are they free? Yes, they are. In fact, they are the only ones in this story that are free the entire time. Let's pick it up in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake, and the, foundation of the, prison, the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Okay, so first of all, how do we know that Paul and Silas are not in bondage but are in fact free? Well, I mean, they were dragged in front of the city magistrates by a hostile crowd. They were then beaten with rods, um, which is, I understand, a pretty unpleasant experience. And then they were thrown into jail. But the thing about it is that they are not acting like people who are trapped. Even though they were beaten and thrown into jail, they were not acting like prisoners. Instead, they are acting like people who are the most free. They were praying and singing hymns to God so much so that everyone around was listening to them, singing and praying and worshiping as they were there in jail. This, you see, is what they would have been doing if they were not in jail. So what does that tell us? They're being in jail doesn't really matter. It has no effect on their freedom. It's interesting, right? Well, what does freedom mean? The earth shook and the chains fell off and the doors opened. Why did this happen? It happened to set someone free, but who? The jailer. You see, the story is not about Paul and Silas's delivery from jail. It's about the jailers finding freedom in Jesus. Because Paul and Silas refused to escape. Jailers and guards were personally responsible for their prisoners, and in some instances were executed for allowing them to escape. So this guy, after the earthquake and the falling of chains and the opening of doors, wakes up, and sees all the open doors and decides to end his own life right there. But Paul and Silas stopped him. Wait, 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 we're all still here. Stop. You don't need to do that. And he falls at their feet trembling, and he asks them this question, what must I do to be saved? Now, does he mean for his life to be spared? No, his life was already spared. He understands in this moment that he is a slave to his work, to his life, to the empire, to all that he is supposed to do. And here were these men singing and worshiping and praying in jail all night long, now there to spare his life. I want what they have. How can I be free like you? So, they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and they spoke the word of the Lord to his entire household. They cl- <laughs> he cleans them up. And then the entire household is baptized. And then he sits them down, and they sit at their table together, these people who should have been driven apart to have a meal in his home. All free in Christ. Verse 35 When it was daylight, the magistrates 
sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. All right, kind of a a strange move here from Paul. A little bit of a power move, considering it takes some of the focus away from what God is doing and puts puts it on him being a Roman citizen, but it was a very intentional move because Paul was, in fact, a Roman citizen. He was born in Tarsus, which was an important city in the Roman province of Cilicia in southeastern Asia Minor. Uh, He was born there, and, and that's where he was from, and apparently Silas was a Roman citizen as well. And because they were Roman citizens, they had rights that other people didn't have. So this gets back to the point earlier in the story. They were beaten without put on, being put on trial. And this was strictly an illegal procedure. Evidently, local magistrates did have the right to put out minor punishments like flogging on non-citizens, even without a hearing. Um, but they felt alarm at this whole turn of events because abuse of the rights of a Roman citizen was a pretty serious offense. So magistrates could be removed from office and have all of their rights reduced. So, so Paul might have seemed a bit huffy here by declaring, I'm a Roman citizen and uh, demanding that they come and escort him out. So why does he do it? What do you think? There's one very important reason. Were he and Silas guilty or innocent? So what does having the magistrates come and take them out and admit their wrongdoing, what does that do for the Christian movement? It shows that they didn't do anything wrong that they're not going against the rules, that they're not breaking the law, that this is not what they are about. And so it changes the narrative of the story. Hey, you know those guys, Paul and Silas? They were thrown in jail. You know why? Because they're Christians. And it changes that story. Hey, guess what? The magistrates made a big mistake. (laughs) They threw these guys into jail. They're so busted. And then they made them walk them out, right? Apparently, these witnesses are kind of dumb. (laughs) And then they go back to this house. Now, imagine imagine this, right? In Lydia's house, there is Lydia. Perhaps there's this slave girl. There's this jailer and his family. And they're all gathered around the table, eating a meal together. These people that would have had nothing to do with one another ever in a million years. And they are brought together by Jesus Christ. So what do we learn about freedom from these stories? You ready? The gospel of Jesus sets people free. Period. Freedom is not found in being wealthy. 
It's not found in your citizenship. It's not found in being part of the power structure. It's not found in being able to see the future. It's not found in having authority over others. Because, you see, the gospel of Jesus deals with freedom on a much higher plane than any of that. That they can't even touch. There is no freedom that compares to the freedom that Jesus Christ gives us. Because, you see, the freedom we have in Christ is the freedom to be who we are. And to not have to put on Heirs or to pretend that we're something we're not. It is instead a freedom where we find ourselves loved and redeemed right where we sit. Are you a rich woman trying to make her way in a male-dominated world? Jesus sees you, and he loves you. Are you a slave controlled by a spirit and the men who own you? Jesus sees you and loves you. Are you a jailer who serves the state but is looking for something more? Oh, Jesus loves you too. Are you someone who formerly killed Christians and now you find yourself in prison because of Jesus? Jesus loves you. There is, we learn in this story, no one outside the love that Jesus has to offer. And when people realize who Jesus is and how he loves them, church, there is great joy there is great joy let's pray together heavenly father we thank you for the freedom that you give us and god it is a freedom unlike any other for it is not based on what we do or how well we can do this or that it's it's not a merit-based system it is a grace based system that father you offer us something we could never earn on our own because you love us you love us as we are and you call us to something more god may we understand that the freedom you offer us in jesus is the most valuable the most true freedom that there is and that it trumps everything else God, thank you for loving us in this way. And it is in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.